Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. How does a bastard? Little known fact about my guest today. He has seven big ideas about design, and we cover all of them on this episode of Little Known Facts with the extraordinary award-winning designer, David Corrins. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is David Corrins, the award-winning scenic and production designer. His Broadway credits include War Paint, Bandstand, Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton, Misery, Motown, Annie, Bring It On, Chinglish, Vanya and Sonia, An Evening with Patti Lapone and Mandy Patinkin, Magic Bird, Godspell, The Pee Wee Herman Show, and Passing Strange. As creative director, David has worked with Kanye West, Mariah Carey, Bruno Mars, and Andrea Bocelli. He's collaborated with Gagosian on gallery and restaurant projects. He's designed installations for music and arts festivals, including Coachella, Lollapalooza, South by Southwest, and Outside Lands. He is the founder and principal designer of David Corrin's Design. He's also a dad, and I'm so thrilled to welcome David Corrin's to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I know your favorite thing is having your bio read, so we could either talk and get to know each other, or I could just read it over and over again. I want to talk a little bit about the credits that you left out. Okay. Should we talk about that? Well, the world premieres of operas all over the world, literally. We could do that. No. We could talk about your Emmy Award. Uh, let's not. We could talk let's about, not. well, Grease Live was Amazeball, so frankly, I could also talk you about that also for amaze the next balls? hour. People that use Amazeballs. <laughs> Do you know that I coined that phrase? If you look up, like, no, in Wikipedia. No, Alana Levine, just try to see who takes credit for Amazeballs. Well, who takes credit and who actually coined it? Because I'm about to take credit for a lot of things. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Who's going to say anything? I don't know. Not, no one in this booth. No, in this booth. very humid. You can <laughs> that bio it really made me sweat. I know. It made me sweat because suddenly there were, like, names in other languages. And usually I pride myself. When Alan Aldo was sitting in your very seat, he told me that I was the best bio reader he had ever heard. And think about how many interviews Alan Aldo has done. Wow. By the, by the way, I saw Alan Alda yesterday at the gym, 
he was going up is the this, stairs. Is and this, this is true? a true story. There's okay. no punchline to this, except okay. that you know when you watch someone's work for basically your entire life. You have that moment where you go like, hey, hey, man, you know, and then you want them to be like, oh, hey, thanks so much for, you know, being a huge fan of mine or engaging in any way. And it was like 8 a.m. and he was tired and I was tired. But I really just wanted to hug him and tell him how much I appreciated him. You should have. I know. But it, that at the gym, it's like the airport, like on a it's red private. eye. You don't talk about yeah, that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When I did my first Broadway play, it was with Alan Alda. Oh, wow. And the thing that I saw him do, you know... When you think about the people along the way who've really influenced you, and we'll, I want to hear who those people are for you, all of them. I better start thinking Start now. thinking beyond Alana, who's amazeballs. On, just because you say it doesn't make it true. <laughs> is that true? Just because you say it doesn't make it true? Yes, I feel like that's if true. I say it, all right. That's true. But keep going with your story, because I know so, you're going somewhere great. Alan would not often go out the stage door. He was actually incredibly shy about that. And I think post-MASH, he was so famous that it was really hard if he wanted to grab a bite between shows and went out the stage door. He'd never get to grab a bite before right. the evening show. But on the rare occasion that he did go out, when someone would ask him for his autograph, he would look them in the eye and say, only if you will also give me yours. And he had this oh. incredible integrity and humility. And his thing was, I do something that's on a lot of screens, and so it makes me very popular, but what I do has no more worth in the world than you person who fixes shoes or works in insurance or paints, that we are all the same. And to be in my, you know, early 20s, having my first job and starting on Broadway with Alan Alda yeah. as my co-star, yeah. um, what a great lesson early on about humility and generosity in For that sure. way. Are what you... did he do with those autographs? He sold them on eBay and made a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I feel like I need to bring a headband that we should exchange at the gym. When I see him again, like, here's my sweaty headband. Or like, Can I have like yours? that says, free to be you and me on it. Like That's actually a beautiful iconic. story. Yeah, it it's is really... a beautiful story because it he's a beautiful man. And he continues to be out in the world just trying to help people communicate with each other. Maybe you'll be my entry, you know, my intro line. Tell him you know Alana. He'll be like, she's amazeballs. It's going to be so <laughs> awkward when he's like, come again? What? <laughs> no, he knows. Okay. He knows. We have an ongoing. Just because uh, you say it. Doesn't, Doesn't make, make it true. true. Um, I know his email address. That's oh, all wow. I'm saying. But when we look <laughs> at you, David, who in the last few years, all of that work you've done and all of that sort of uh, appreciation and notoriety within the theater community has expanded into a much more global fascination with you. And you have been able to take something and use this skill in so many different genres. But I want to go back, if you will. Okay. Where did you grow up? Um, I'm still stuck on global fasc fascination. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Because I say it, it is true. Well, I know. In this room, it felt true. Uh, <laughs> it's a little room. Um, Such a teeny room. I grew up in a town called Mansfield, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, which is a suburb of Boston. And it is a very provincial, kind of lovely place to grow up-ish. But pretty culturally void. But I was actually just having a conversation with a friend of mine who also grew up in Mansfield, Massachusetts. We don't see each other that frequently. And I was saying one of the things that was interesting about it to me is that you really had to work hard to have an actual cultural experience. Mm -hmm. All the doors were kind of open. If you wanted to, you could get into Boston or get into New York or just even, you know, attach yourself to the concert choir or the band or something. But it wasn't part of the culture at all. It was a football-driven town. 
And so I had to really work for it. And I didn't, it wasn't until I left there and it was in the rearview mirror that I, and I went to Amherst for college um, at UMass Amherst. And all of a sudden there was like a whole lot of diversity and a whole lot of different ways of thinking. And then I was like, oh, Mansfield, that was like a lovely, safe place Mm -hmm. to live. Cool that I got out of there. But I think it set me up to work really hard to find a path out of there. Were you a jock? Total jock. Total jock. Um, very competitive athlete, but also a very um, focused musician and what performer. Did you play? I started with um, the piano, then I moved on to the alto saxophone, and then eventually kind of all the woodwinds and all the brass. Wow. And then, you know, self-actualizes the drum major of the band, the marching band. With that fancy uniform and everything. In fact, I was literally having this conversation the other day um, because speaking of the provincial hometown, we had, you know, the homecoming king and queen and the court and all that stuff. And they picked the most popular girls, senior and junior year of high school. And then all of the sports captains would escort all of this, the the queen and her court or whatever it was um, at a halftime game of a football game. And of course I was First of all, a sports captain, but I was also the drum major of the band. And so I looked back at a picture recently of all of these totally done up girls standing awkwardly on like the 50 and the 45 and the 40 yard line, all escorted with equally awkward jockey guys, all in like sports jackets and ties and me in a polyester dust ruffle gold cummerbund uh, I'm picturing the music man in my head right now. But it was an interesting, in that picture, a microcosm of my high school career because there I was a sports captain and also like the king of the geeks. Right. Happily. But I was also one of like four Jews growing up in my hometown. And that was hard, but I think also, um, again, in the rearview mirror, looking back at that experience, I think that like really toughened me up. That was like a tricky way to grow up in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Well, why was your family there? Well, my father was a podiatrist and he applied to get a license in one of like four states. And as the story goes, they kind of like threw a dart at a map and said, it's either going to be, I don't know, Connecticut, New York, Massachusetts or whatever. And they, they picked this place and he started his practice there. I had two older sisters. I have two older sisters. And there was a town next town over that was 60% Jewish. They didn't, they didn't go there. They went to Mansfield. I know. So close. (laughs) Well, you know, and, and it was strange because we went to Hebrew school and in that other town, uh, in that other town. And we carpooled with like the one other Jew. Mm -hmm. And then I became a Hebrew school dropout. But I did, I don't know how I pulled this off, but when I was around 11 or 12, my parents said, do you want to have a bar mitzvah? Is that like a thing that's interesting to you? And it was so uninteresting to me. But I remember thinking of my grandmother, who was an Italian converted to Judaism. She went from Francesca Girardi to Francie Corrins. Oh, my um, God. She became the matriarch of this Jewish family. And yeah. I remember thinking, oh, she'll be really proud of me. And so it. I did it. So my Was she alive for this? Totally alive okay. and, you know, fully excited. And she gave us all our Hebrew names. We're sort of like, you're very, very Italian. But the Jews and Italians are the same. Yeah, but it does take studying and, and, a, and, a, and a real kind of desire to take this thing on. And especially when you're growing up and you're in a culture of kids who are not doing that. It's not like every weekend everyone's doing it the way that my kids are being raised. Okay, so <clears throat> your grandmother, yeah. Francie, Francie, grew up where? She grew up in Brooklyn. She grew up in Brooklyn. Um, and, and your grandfather, who was, what was his name? Louis. Louis Corns. Yeah. Also from Brooklyn? Uh, yes. And my grandmother was off the boat Italian, Sicilian, 
and she met a guy, Louis, 15 years older than her, and she was the most extraordinary woman. She not only went to college, born in 1915, went to college, but she got uh, multiple master's degrees and spoke like seven languages fluently and not only became the matriarch of this Jewish family, but she also taught all these languages and went on to become a lifelong learner and teacher. And even in retirement was constantly like seeking out incredible educational opportunities. And she also beat polio, by the way, because her mother used to rub olive oil on her legs and make her get up and walk oh and swim. God. And so she always had like a little bit of a weird limp, but was incredibly active and lived to be 96 or seven years old. That was really, she was extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. So she would, you know, being active was a part of her, a big part of her life. And therefore when we would visit or they would visit us, we would walk and she would, um, we would walk seven tenths of a mile to the end of my street to the cemetery and we would walk up, a beautiful cemetery, up and down the rows, and she would pronounce the names of all these crazy, you know, Polish and Russian and Italian last names. names and she would did. make up stories about them because she, it was really interesting. You mean and just using her imagination? Yeah, like, to oh, Ciccone, you. Oh, you know, this is, yeah. you know, he probably is from such and such. And, you know, she just spoke with such authority. We just sort of bought into it. That is so beautiful. Francie. So they stayed in Brooklyn? No, no, no. They, uh, my grandfather, who was older, uh, they retired and moved to Fort Lauderdale, where all Jews go. Where all good Jews uh, can All good be found, Jews go yes. um, to Sunrise, Florida. Um, <laughs> shout out to Sunrise. They moved there in 1976, so the year that I was born. So I only know the Floridians. So winter breaks were spent in Florida. Yeah, there was a solid probably a, a week in the north and a week in the south right. that we would hang out with them. Okay. Um, but, you know, there was also an expectation to sit down and write letters whenever, the, you know, and it was all about like corresponding. And um, I think a lot of my moral compass, of which there's very little. Mm, but whatever uh, you have com- left. Yeah, comes from uh, my relationship with those guys. That is incredible. Yeah. I'm so glad you just told me about that. Me too. I don't, I don't often speak of them, but really, um, Francie in particular, although Louis too, we, we were huge, huge for me. And they're really like my um, deep connection to my family. It's funny. There's this thing going around right now connected to the Tony Award season. You know, I think it's like hashtag supporting cast and kind of like who hmm. are the people in your life who are really meaningful for you along your journey. And it's really tricky because it's impossible to pick one. But when you really go back and think like, okay, there's, you know, I know you spent a lot of time at Williamstown Theater Festival. And obviously that was a place that must have been unbelievably impactful. And you're getting the 10,000 hours, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell speaks of, of of like getting to do the thing. But Louis and, and Francie are like, these extraordinary people and you carry yes. them with you. And it's now it's out there. Yeah, and we no, can and they honor them very, publicly. very large. Yeah. I mean, my grandmother would cut pizza with scissors. She was like <laughs> intense and amazing. And, you know, she forced me to read. I didn't want to read. She no. did all. I mean, she was great. When you look back to be a designer, among other things, not just must you see the world through a certain set of eyes, but you also have to have talent to take what you see in your head and put it on paper. Mm-hmm. You describe being you know, a musician and a singer and a jock. When did you notice like, oh, I can look at something and I can draw it and it looks just like the thing I just saw? Well, I still don't really have that. I, you have I a can't, computer program. I can't really, I can't really draw. And actually, I, I Is just, that true? I feel I like can, I don't believe you. I can now draw to convey an idea, but I don't draw beautifully the way that some of my friends um, have that skill. And I remember when I kind of 
begun to get into this industry, my college professor said, I was like, I don't want to do this. And he's, and I said, I can't draw. And he said, you don't have to be able to draw. You have to be able to use a, your brain and a photocopy machine because you can scale things, you can scan things, you can enlarge them. And, and it's really about conveying an idea. Uh -huh. And so that was helpful. I had this horrible audition uh, experience in which I wanted to become Billy Bigelow in, the, in my senior year in Carousel. And I didn't get the part. I got Jigger Cragen. And my ego was so crushed. And the choral teacher said to me, you should work with the math teacher who is the guy that builds the sets because you might be able to help. And that was my first sense, uh, real taste of backstage work. And I liked it, but I was really so hurt by the audition experience. When I went to college, I begun to, I wanted to stay in the performing arts a bit. I was on track to probably get the lead. Mm -hmm. You know, I, Based on previous work at Mansfield High. Yeah. I mean, my, my resume was pretty stacked. Mm -hmm. I had been in, um, you know, three or four musicals. Okay. Uh, you Just know, by the way, not for nothing. Yeah, no, I had a, a couple speaking parts on my way up there. I, I don't know. I worked really hard, and I actually sung the soliloquy um, for an audition, which is insane. As that a is a very hard song. Anyway, I didn't get the part. I was crushed, and I uh, and I did want to stay. I think in the theater. Um, so I took a course called Beginning Technique, Techniques in Design in which we learn a little bit about all sorts of technical Wait, in backgrounds. high school or college? In college. Okay. I never was going to audition again after that experience. I can't believe it. Super crushed. And uh, the professor really said, you're pretty good at this, this design thing. You should have a professional experience and you should apply to inter uh, for an internship at Williamstown Theater Festival. And I worked with one of the grad students who had been to Williamstown to put together a portfolio. And I had really had Nothing no yet. examples of work or very few. And I worked pretty hard to put something together and I got the internship. And it, when it was there that I not only saw a trajectory of how to be go from being an intern to an assistant and mm -hmm. be a working designer – but I loved the kind of boot camp, physical, we're going to stay overnight. And like, in a way, who does the best being sleep deprived and also focused. And also I had been a house painter and so I had brush skills. And so I could just kind of will the work into existence. A house painter is like summer job, make money. Summer job, make money. There were seven interns that year and several of them had grown up drawing and sculpting and one of them was a child of a set designer and like it was you know this is like crazy group and I was by far the least experienced but what that experience gave me the Williamstown experience was not only um, making relationships with a bunch of peers who would then grow into be my collaborators yeah. I saw what I had to do in order to get asked back date I, a lot of other interns <laughs> number one for sure uh, no it was more Okay, this person can draw, this person can paint, this person can do this, this building models. I mean, understanding the process. And then I was able to take those skills that I did not have and go back and talk to my professors at school and say, hey, listen, I, I need to learn these things. Can you help me? But also I then set forth on the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 mm -hmm. hours. And because I had been an athlete and a musician and I, you know, I could rehearse and practice with rigor, I sat down and got myself those 10,000 hours as quickly as I possibly could. And and thank God, uh, Williamstown saw in me um, this work ethic because there was not really a role between intern and what was called the second assistant designer. And they made a spot for me. The tiers were intern, A2, assistant, second right. assistant, A1, and then designer. And they made an A2 and a half for me. And they asked me back 
which was a huge vote of confidence because I did not have the skill set to become a full A2. And then I worked my way up for five years, eventually running the design department. Incredible. Um, and it was a weird thing because I was then in charge of hiring the next group groupings of future designers and artisans, and I was really one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was probably, you know, 25 by the time I was doing that and hiring 50 people to work in the scene shop and painters and craftspeople. So that was strange because somewhere in there I had applied to grad school. I only applied to Yale. I did not get into Yale. All of my friends got into Yale. I was super crushed um, again. You had sung the soliloquy I had sung Yale yeah. design. And, and I mean, I applied to Yale because all of my friends, you know, seemed that's to be the go. only. That's where That's where they told me I was to go. then, yeah. And also, you know, there was this amazing Yale mafia at Williamstown. And so I just saw all these people. Um, doing that, and when I didn't get in, because ironically, I was told I couldn't draw. Mm-hmm. Not by me. I, I know. said you could. I know. Well, I wasn't on that. Committee. I would show them. Years later, Michael Jurgen, who was one of the two professors there, won an award, which I had won the year before, and they asked the person in the previous year, like the Academy Awards, sure. but, but different, yeah, to give the award. You know, because I had won it the previous year. And so I gave this whole long speech about Michael's work. And then I reminded him that I... Like you do. That he booted me out of... Or didn't even boot me out. He didn't even allow didn't me in. Didn't even give you a shot. Um, he didn't remember. It mm. was okay. Um, but now occasionally I'll go to the design show and say, like... By the way, remember not me. for nothing. You didn't, you didn't let me in. Yeah. But it was really great. I mean, it's funny. As I'm talking to you, I'm realizing all of these, like, let your haters be your motivators. These people were not my haters. But I definitely but they were do well. Blocks. Yeah, I see. I see real opportunity, and when I see like ducks out on the water, I mean, it is the athlete in me where I kind of go like, "Oh, I see what I need to do to accomplish this thing. I'm going to try to do it." Well, that kind of stand up and brush yourself off and get back in the game—that's an incredible life skill. And yeah. I wonder if you know, again, just to talk about like parenting, I don't know if you can teach that. Or if it's like an intuited, like you have to be born with it. I feel like this is the moment where I'm wondering, are my children going to listen to this podcast? Because mm-hmm. I have two. They are very different. And the older one is a pretty gifted athlete and pretty great at most things when she starts. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that her mom and I always talked about was, gosh, her issue is going to be if she's not good at it immediately, is she going to dump it? The other one is also pretty gifted at a lot of things, but will practice. If you say, here's how you bounce this ball, she and she can't do it, she'll do it 74,000 right. times. She'll come back seven hours later. It's, right. it's a thing. So, um, And I see myself in that, uh-huh. right? I, um, because if I, I had nothing else but time on my hands to practice stuff. Right. Um, and it's been interesting because I don't have much experience comparing how kids develop except for the way that I developed and my sisters developed and a few other people. So um, I I have opted for just continuing to sort of like anecdotally tell my kids stories like, hey, if you want to get better at soccer, you should put a soccer ball at your feet and touch it. You know, don't just go. No one ever had to tell me that. But, uh, you know, parenting is like this wonderful, crazy thing because you see some of the some of the one parent and some of the other parent and then this magical thing in between where like you're like where did that come from right and um i think you try and encourage all of those bits and pieces because you know well my kids are so lucky because i know exactly how to parent <laughs> in every situation so if you need any advice like you name it 
I got this. Done and done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I hear you, but like, don't relate at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's weird because I also feel like it's also complicated to be a kid of a successful person, and I and I count myself as fairly successful, but I also think that like it's tricky. It's tricky, and I remember there's a friend of mine who has a whole bunch of fancy awards mm. that, that come along with trophies. Mm-hmm. And I went to his house, and I was looking around, and I was like, hey, where's your blah, blah, blah? And he said, they're all in a drawer, all of them in one drawer over there, because I do not want my kids you know, seeing that stuff every day, because it's hard enough to kind of Deal make with, your way in yeah. the world, let alone seeing all the stuff. And I really, um, I, you know, I try and talk about real things and, and not put yours those in a drawer. I mean, I don't have a lot of awards, so it's yeah. not that hard. My More like a small, yeah, like a like a, <laughs> a cubby. It's, it's at best. <laughs> well, that's not true, but that's it's totally true. But the, you know, the things I have can go away pretty easily. Okay, and certificates are also easy to put away. Totally. That's great too. Don't even take those away from the ceremony. <laughs> Keep them. Just white out and use them next year because exactly. you're really into recycling. Totally. I know. Who were some of the people who are still working in the industry today that you met or came up with through the Williamstown Theater Festival? Oh, man. I mean, we... During your tenure, as it it, were. In my time there, I'm sure that everyone thinks this in every generation, not just at Williamstown, but in the world, is like, oh, the golden years. We had... uh, The golden years. From 1997 to 2005 or so, we often would think about it like it was Paris turn of the century. I mean, it was really in every kind of discipline, whether it was directors, performers, producers, an incredible group that have gone on to be phenomenally successful. I mean, we were there through like the Gwyneth Paltrow, Ethan Hawke, Michael Ritchie ran the theater Mm -hmm. uh, festival at the time, and Jenny Gersten was his second in command. She has remained a dear friend and collaborator frequently, but I mean, we... it was crazy because everyone, I mean, everyone was there from Dylan Bake. I, I mean, and I'm saying, I've said three names and it's yeah. all very weird and scattershot. But almost every working designer on Broadway and off Broadway came through there Cut at the time. Cut their teeth at that time, um, yeah. And also were coming in as the working professionals. So I got a chance to work with John Lee Beatty and Alan Moyer and Derek McLean and, you know. All and, the greats. I mean, you go down the list and you sort of think, basically, if all roads re- lead to Rome, uh, all all roads in the theater community, you can't have a conversation with someone where at least one of the people in the conversation didn't Wasn't go to Williamstown or, or hasn't gone back since. Yeah. Strangely, I haven't been back in years. But what have you been busy? I, you know what? I haven't been asked. No. Uh, I, I've been busy. <gasps> Do the soliloquy. You sing that song. God. <sighs> They're doing a revival of Carousel in Williamstown, and they really need it. Oh, I was like, I know. It's Tony season. <laughs> I hear Josh Henry's performance of the Soliloquy is like a shade better than mine. Just Mestful a shade. High School in 1994. Just a little bit. Um, Just a little bit. Uh, you know what? It's It was such an inspiring time, but that was that other thing where you sort of I, – I oftentimes talk about my internship as a blessing and a curse because I was able to see these seven other people who wanted to do the same thing I did and then others in the department – and I thought about them a lot mm-hmm. during the school year and during um, my working time, thinking like, I have to get back there. And so it was both the most supportive experience and also it felt very competitive because there weren't seven spots. Yeah. And so um, 
it's a blessing and a curse because I remember when the first person decided to not pursue set design and it was like someone passed away. Mm. It was like, wait, what? How? Right. It wasn't a thing that you thought you could do. It was just a thing that you, we all thought we would do forever. And then you realize real life takes over mm-hmm. and perhaps this lifestyle isn't for everyone. And then I was just in too deep. So I just stuck with it. And being affirmed. Right. You also there's it's a combination of I love this and also people seem to be responding to what I'm doing. And also you're so proud of the community and the work. I mean, it's no small task. In fact, some would say it's Herculean to put up a full scale regional theater size show every single week for 12 weeks in a row. I mean, it was like, you know, so there was like a lot of pride and also um, the work was excellent. So I want to ask you something, because most of my career I've been an actor on occasion, I've produced. Now I'm doing this, which is the most joyful. But there's a way in which the people who are on stage and certain members of this community get a lot of attention, right? If you produce a movie and there's no way any of it could have happened without you, on the red carpet, no one wants your picture. Of course. Right? And so there is something interesting to me about someone who came from originally wanting the glory job, right, or the more obvious glory job. I want to be in the show. As life took you through, it turns out building the thing Mm -hmm. was actually tremendously satisfying. But I wonder, what do you do with the part of you that isn't kind of getting the shiny spotlight? Now you are. But was that hard for you to, like, be at Williamstown where actor after actor is acting? Or had you let that go early on? Well, first of all, I wanted to be in the plays because I didn't even know that being a designer was a thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wasn't really raised going to the theater a lot. And so I wasn't that aware that the environments were a thing that you could, that there was someone in charge of making. Right. Um, I thought the math teacher kind of like stapled, you know, cardboard to pieces of wood. I don't know that he didn't. And in fact, that's what he did. Uh, (laughs) And that, when you're in a bind and you've got short time, staplers are helpful. Cardboard works, it turns out. Uh, So so, one good thing about Amazon and all that, all There's that like cardboard. two good things about Amazon. Uh, I hear that Prime <laughs> program they've got is really happening. Things do come quick. So I didn't know about that, uh, but that feeling of creation and coming together was exactly like what it was on, on a sports team and on, in a band, and you kind of come together for a common goal, and you have that feeling of like giving it to the world, and it felt great. I never really thought about this glory thing, uh-huh. you know, that wasn't really a motivator. I think that probably a lot of most people who come from the design background probably started in performance because I think that's just the way we all Ended come up in up. that room where things um, were happening. Yeah. yeah. But I, it just never really was a thing for me. I obviously saw all my fancy actor friends, you know, go off to LA and get, you know, movies and, and television shows and, and yeah, and lifestyles. And, yeah. and that was um, interesting. I feel like for an actor... And even a director, accomplishment gets you money and fame and time off. And for a designer, accomplishment gets you more work. Right. You know, I mean, the thing about the Hamilton, Grease Live, Dear Evan Hansen, that kind of um, zeitgeisty experience has been that Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen have made theater cool and put it in the middle of the conversation. And so I think because, you know, in high waters, all ships will rise. And so everyone wants to have a conversation with, you know, Lynn and Tommy and whoever else and then if they can't get any of the people in the show to talk about it they might be like what's it like to work on that Uh thing but i just think that theater professionals used to be the superstars of the world 
Right. When you think about late night television, you think about like a Richard Burton or you think about, you know, there were some yeah. moments where that was a, so respected unbelievable. and desired. People yeah. also used to dress up to go to the theater and right. people also used to dress up, you know, to get on planes. Yeah. And now like pilots are blue collar workers. I don't understand that at all. You're sort of like you're flying the plane. You, right. We should bow down to you. But anyway, the the idea of theater being solidly back in the center of a, a cultural conversation has been interesting and therefore i think the making of the theater and the kind of sculpting of the world and the creating of the environment environments are really interesting to people and i remember in whatever year that was 1984 watching the making of the thriller video right when you could start seeing behind the scenes and like of something and that john landis like the Watching Michael Jackson get outfitted for his contact lenses right. or those prosthetics or the casting of the dancers and all those zombies drinking Coca-Cola or whatever that was, was more riveting to me to see the process. I mean, the video was out of this world, but the, but to get to see how they made it, and I feel like I live my life creating those moments and I see all those moments, but I sort of forget how fascinating the process is, and I think most people find it fascinating, and so... It's been interesting to watch like the kind of unbelievable rise of all these performers, you know, attached to these shows mm -hmm. and other things that I work on. But then there's a whole bunch of people that if you show them this other thing, they're really interested too. What's the other thing? Um, you know, process. Mm -hmm. How do, you know, Hamilton, I think people think, oh, turntables, a bunch of wood and a bunch of bricks. Right. You know, nice work. Anyway, but you know, no one really understands that we had 35 other versions of the design and that it could have been something else. And I think people think, oh, that look has kind of become iconic or whatever that is for the right. show. How could I ever do the show without a turntable? But there were thousands of different possibilities. And also once we had that kind of Rosetta Stone and that was going to be our due mm -hmm. north to create the thing, there were still thousands of other possibilities. And letting people in on what that process was, either through social media or talking about it or interview, you know, People are fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just did a talk last night at the Smithsonian, and there were hundreds of people there, and their questions were so insightful, and it was all about process. Did they ask you to speak about something specific, or did they just invite you to talk about design? They wanted your... to talk about, really, world building and creating the world. In particular, I think the hook was Hamilton, because uh -huh. Hamilton's about to play okay. in, um, DC. in D.C. Yeah. But uh, Peter Marks and I had the conversation, and he is a huge champion and fan of Dear Evan Hansen, and also we talked about the Hamilton exhibition mm -hmm. and like a bunch of other things I've been working on. But the kind of through line through all that is, okay, there's a thing. Let's call it a script or a score. How do you then build a world? And sometimes in the theater, there's a kind of a hierarchical um, collaborative pyramid or triangle where there's a writer and a playwright, a composer, and then, you know, a director and a choreographer, a musical director. But in rock and roll, there is no director. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of like act as all of those things, right. like a conceptor, that kind of idea of like, how do you build a world based on a piece of music? How do you build a world based on some intellectual property? And that I think people are fascinated by because, by the way, we build worlds in our homes sure. every single day. Yeah. And so I've thought a lot about space and how you can change space to get what you want. When you were beginning... I mean, now there's a vocabulary that, that you have created that is inspiring so many people, both who get the benefit of seeing your work and then designers coming up and they're studying you. And which, right, like it's all so heady, but you are such a prolific designer and, and still 
young with so much more Thank ahead you of you. Thank you for saying so. Here, I'm My sorry, children it's audio. Let me know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> What a waste that this is a audio experience. But it's always so interesting to me who people's original inspirations were. Like I just talked to someone and they were like, "It was all Robert Altman," even though he right. writes musicals. And for someone else, it's you know Picasso. When you were starting and didn't yet maybe have your own language, sure, um, or maybe you did out of the womb, and some people are pro- prodigies in that way. Who were the designers that you were like, "Ooh, I am so turned on by that"? Right. Well, first of all, I did not have my own language, and in fact, I still feel like I'm finding my language. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I'm perhaps most proud of about my quote-unquote aesthetic is that I really think my aesthetic is do what the project needs. Mm-hmm. Do not put an imprint on the thing. Like if I. If I'm like really turned on by some round room and the show is called, you know, Square Corner Play, SpongeBob SquarePants. I, yeah, yeah, I would yeah. not make a costume for him that was round. So, anyway, I I really I try so hard to um, just serve the story the best I can. Okay. So, to answer your other question. When I got to Williamstown, I had no idea. As I said, I didn't really know anything about scenography. There were these two books. I know I said it books because no one reads them anymore. That were called American Set Design One and American Set Design Two. Those are good titles. I mean, you what know a what? Cliffhanger. They they what nailed it because guess one? what it was about. Um. Uh, and in the first uh, book were you know what I, for when I was coming up, kind of the old guard. It was Ming Jolie. It was Ralph Funicello. It was Tony Walton. It was a kind of group of grandmasters. And there were some sketches. There were some interviews with these gentlemen and a couple of ladies. There were no other real resources. There wasn't Google. So you sort of were like, wow, here's a book of 12 profiles Mm -hmm. in which they talked about some seminal productions that they worked on, some collaborators, some process stuff. And you could see some people have models, some some were beautiful artisans, some could really draw, some could paint. Um, you had some production shots, and that was pretty interesting. I had never seen those books, and I studied those books. And then American Set Design 2 came mm-hmm. out, and it was a— The sequel. Uh, yeah, the sequel, and it was like a whole group of 12 younger people. Who were some of John those John Napier, who did you know all the big kind of British musicals, Cats, and um, John Lee Beatty. There was a group of like people who are still now—I don't know, maybe they're like in their 70s. Like Santo like, Laquasto, that generation. Was, for sure, yeah. and Santo was one of them in the book. Yeah. And, it, and, and now it's like, oh, some of those guys— show up at Williamstown Theater Festival. So mm-hmm. I'm reading the book and then, you know, and I actually have a, I have someone who I remember assisting one of them and I said, I gotta go, I have to go, I have to go. I'm like, I gotta go talk to a Broadway set designer. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it, it was a big deal. These people were in a book and I could see their work and they had like real gravitas. Mm-hmm. So then there was the guard beneath them, which were the Neil Patels, the Alan Moyers, the Eric McLeans, who were really, truly like, you know, in their 40s and getting it done, like, you know, six or seven years out of grad school when I was an intern, you know, working all over the country and the world doing the stuff and Broadway productions. And, you know, we would think, oh, gosh, if they did an American Set Design 3, here are the, yeah, you know, the 12 next volume. now. Yeah. And so... I learned a lot just about process, but I learned a lot also like at the coffee shop with these guys um, and these women who I would assist um, through Williamstown. And I wound up assisting most of them. 
Um, Is that I, how you first started professionally? Well, I, as Derek McLean would say, I wasn't a great assistant. Okay. I wasn't a great studio assistant, meaning my skill set of drafting and building models wasn't amazing, but I was a really, really, really great in the theater assistant because I could get the shows up and I could talk to the scene shops and I could talk to the painters and I could like really tr uh, be a trusted deputy to make sure work calls and things got done. Right. And to communicate the designer's totally. desires. Yeah. And and um, so I did start assisting and Jim Noon, who did Jekyll and Hyde and many other shows, was a person who I had assisted several years at Williamstown and had really proven that I could come through in a crisis. Mm -hmm. He said, when I finally moved to New York, you know, will you come work in my studio? And I think he gave me 500 bucks a week. And the first thing I did was assemble by hand, not screw gun, I'm talking manual screwdriver, all of his office furniture. And it was like an Indian summer. It was so hot. <laughs> and uh, I think it was Office Depot, but it was a... It was but not But the fun. other thing that yeah. I did was I assisted him on um, Fully Committed, the original production, uh, and he knew I could paint and he knew I could build. And he said... Uh, will you do the paint elevations based on this Francis Bacon painting? And I did. And then he asked me to, like, paint the show, which was totally not something I thought I would do. And Nikki Martin uh, was the director and became a dear friend and longtime collaborator. He came up through Williamstown as well. Yeah. And he, Nikki also knew I could put shows up. And Nikki hired me frequently mm -hmm. and gave me many of my first big jobs. And, uh, you know, the thing about working with Jim was – at the end of every day, even though I had a full-time job, he would say to me, you want to come in tomorrow? You know, like, it, he would open up the door for me to leave. Because there's always more furniture to put Well, together. you know, he... That's so sweet, though. What, what, it was what sweet. is that? Like, you, know what, what... you know what I think it was? I think he respected the fact that he thought I was going to be a designer. And um, it's funny. He had a full-time lead associate who went to NYU, got a master's, and was like a hotshot. And it was just the two of us. And I remember I was like 20-nothing years old, and Jim left the studio, and I said to this guy, so when are you going to open your own studio? And he looked at me. I was a child. Mm -hmm. He looked at me and was like, how dare you? I have a terminal degree. I'm one of the best people that, you know, that does what we do in this industry. And, like, this is a self-actualizing. I don't need to go. And I... I didn't. I didn't know because I thought, oh, what you do is you're an assistant, then you're an associate, then you're a designer, steps. and then you, yeah. I had no idea. And in that moment, I was like, oh my god, Jim is only as good as this guy and I are. Right. And that was a profound lesson to learn. And Jim also, in every single meeting, would say, would introduce me as, "This is David Corrins. He's a young designer that I work with. Really Not nice. here's my assistant. Yeah. And I try and do the same thing." Um, I really took that with me. And as I built my studio one person at a time and one show at a time, I've thought a lot about that because I have an associate who has been with me for 21 years as of last Monday. And um, I couldn't do what I do without these guys. I mean, no chance. How big a team do you have at this point? I think we're now, you know, today we might be 20. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not all designers. Some of us are um, crafts. People, illustrators, model makers and fabricators, some administrative folks, some project managers, some associates. Well, I'm going to fast forward because the bio I read and listeners should know, David was 
basically hiding under the table, trying not to listen. He was very shy and embarrassed about hearing his credits, which is incredibly charming. I'm getting shy and embarrassed just talking about Just talking about the reading of the bio. (laughs) Uh, You know, you have a tremendous Broadway resume at this point, and then you have like a tremendous life resume of projects that don't involve the theater at all. And you have a studio, which sounds like it started about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about sort of how this passion rippled and kind of created, you know, these circles that got larger and larger and more encompassing of all sorts of things. I have two things that I find really incredible to me, having seen almost everything that you've designed, which is to say that I cannot point to, and I think this is remarkable when we talk about vocabulary or your language of design. You know, Dear Evan Hansen takes place basically in 2017, Mm -hmm. and Hamilton takes place in 1776 and other years, and we time travel a little bit in both those plays Mm -hmm. over time. That's an extraordinary thing for you, you know, as a, you don't seem schizophrenic, to live in such different time periods where, you know, one is like as you said, wood and steel and beams, and the other is all technology and beautiful, you know, kind of intense lighting. And I mean, it's so crazy to me that both of those things happened at the same time and both came out of you. And that Michael Greif and Tommy Kale, who were working in such different worlds, both wanted you, right? Like that your reputation that precedes you is whatever it is, he will tell your story. I've well, heard that's you... nice. That made my hair well, stand up because well, that's actually a be- like beautiful. I mean, that's what that's sort of the brass ring, right? That yes, you want that. Yes, as opposed to okay, it's a high tech show, right? So we're going to get David Corns because he does like this really cool modern stuff, or like oh, if you want something that takes you back in time, that's amazing. Thank you. And that's not true for everyone, right? And Kanye West calls you too, and so does Mariah Carey, and and so do operas. Right. So there's a handful of people who kind of live in all those worlds at the same time. And I don't know if there's like a way to be concise about how that journey happened, but how did that journey happen? Well, I think that people think with um, Hamilton, oh, now that you did Hamilton, you're doing all sorts of other stuff. And the truth is... I've been doing other stuff since the very beginning. Yeah. I've been doing furniture design and interior design okay. and all sorts of things. And I've had no damn business doing any of those things for as long as I've been doing them. I had no business doing a production design for a feature film, you know, two years. Before into, you had done a film. I didn't even yeah. know what the difference between an art director and a production designer was. I learned what it was, but I had right. no idea what the difference was when I got hired to do it. Um, do you know so, what a Foley artist is? Of course. Famously. <laughs> 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 um, well, anyway, no, I never heard of it. What do you mean? Uh, that better not be an outtake. We both by were the fired. Way. We uh, both got fired from life in that moment. They were uh, with us, and then yeah. they were like, what? either that. I mean, good thing, you know, that would be a meme, yeah. right? Except yeah. there's no such thing as an audio meme. There is now, my friend. I've learned to slam on the brake before I even turn the key. My conversation with designer extraordinaire David Corrins went on for so long that I'm making this a two-part conversation. When we pick up next week, we go deep into the worlds of Dear Evan Hansen, Hamilton, and so much more. See you next week, and thank you for listening.
If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.